It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Sarah Smarsh grew up poor on a farm in Kansas. She says people in rural parts of the country, like her family, are stereotyped by the media and lawmakers in Washington. Such a hyper-politicized framework for discussing human lives, she says, is incredibly destructive. To move to a place where judgments aren't passed so easily, she thinks stereotypes need to be stamped out. I think right now we're, we are potentially more demoralized as a country than we even realize in the sort of survival mode that we have entered for this civic moment. It's, it's incredibly important for us to be inspired by one another just in looking each other in the eye and seeing one another's goodness. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Sarah Smarsh was the first in her family to attend college. Now she's a journalist who covers socioeconomic class, politics, and public policy. She lives 30 miles from her family farm. Her neighbors have a great pride of place, she says, that's not reflected in the national news. You'll get a headline that says something very casually like referring to my area as the flyover states. There is a blind spot there that in that newsroom nobody caught that that is actually an incredibly condescending term for someone who lives there. Smarsh sits down with another writer who grew up in rural America. Tara Westover was raised in the mountains of Idaho. Her best-selling memoir is Educated. Smarsh also wrote about her family story in the book Heartland. James Fallows moderates the conversation. He writes for The Atlantic and is the author of Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. Here's Fallows. Here is a theme that I've prepared both uh, Tara and Sarah for, which is that precisely because their books have made such an impact and they have been interviewed so often and been on so many programs and have had a chance to kind of tell the personal narratives. Their books are very different in their emphasis and their structure and their theme, but they're similar in being the tales of young women growing up and observing the worlds that are around them and that are not normally the center of, of American uh, media narratives. Because this have be, these have become so prominent, I'm not going to mainly ask them about their books themselves. Instead, I'm going to ask about how other people in the United States should talk about, should think about, should deal with the parts of, of America that you have portrayed. But a little switcheroo. I'm going to ask each of you one short question about, about your book. And, and here's uh, the idea is short question and, and hoped for short answer. In the, in the many sessions you've had over the, over the past year plus uh, writing about your book, what's the one thing you, th- you wish people had paid more attention to, the one message of your book you think hasn't gotten out? This is your chance to say what I really meant to say was X. And Tara, I'll start with you. Sure. Um... I'm going to have a real short answer, I guess, because I don't have any. I don't have anything like that. I, I think when you write a book like this, you have a, a choice of how to construct the narrative, and you can stay very much in the story, and you can write it so that you're just in the story, like I call it an experiential way of writing, or you can step out every once in a while and more like an essay or an anecdote, so this is what I think this means. And I think there's real reasons to do both. I think there's compelling reasons to do both, but I chose to stay in the moment, I chose to write it as an experience. And I knew when I did that, that two people have the same experience, they come to different conclusions. And I thought that 
that was a, a cost I was comfortable with because I wanted people to occupy the space and look around the room and think and, and have their own thoughts and feelings about it. And so people come up to me and say all kinds of things about my book um, uh, and I all kinds of things about my family and the way that they imagine those relationships will evolve going forward. And I always just imagine, um, you know, this is... This is probably got a lot to do with you and not a lot to do with me. And, and that's great. I think that's what storytelling is for. I think storytelling is something that we do and something we engage with because we, we work out how we feel about other people's lives and the choices that we made and then we use those things to work out how we feel about our own lives. And then in terms of overturning stereotypes that we have, I think that same idea of storytelling is being, being in that space and looking around and, and forming your own ideas and hopefully not a lot of me saying this is what this means, or this is how you should look at this. I, I do enough of that by what I put in the room. <laughs> but, uh, but once in the room, I, I, I'm okay letting go, and I'm always all right. Really, there's very few times that people have come up to me and had a specific interpretation of the book that I've said, no, that, that's not it. Uh, like, almost never. So uh, I, I don't have anything like that. I'm, I'm okay. I, I think for it to work, it has to, with the way that I did it, for it to work, I kind of have to let go of that. Thanks. Sarah, how about you? What, what is, there, is there any main thing you wish had gotten across more clearly from your book? I, I guess I wouldn't say um, that I have a, a wish or regret that's arisen from those many conversations, but, but I can offer this that's sort of a commentary on the way that we um, receive narratives from different types of folks, and I think it might have to do something with my being a woman. Um, so, so my book is, is really kind of a hybrid nonfiction form in some ways. Um, the, the backbone of it is certainly memoir, and I wrote those passages many years ago, um, over 15 years ago, actually. I got my first research grant to start doing family research. And at that time, it was a very personal tale. But as my career as a journalist evolved and my vantage on the issues and bigger structures that, that created and informed that intimate and private life became more revealed to me and understood by me, um, I did attempt to also put on my, my hat as an analyst or commentator or journalist and not a heavy-handed way, hopefully, but to provide some uh, social and historic context for uh, addiction that was rife in my community and so on. And, um, and, and so there was some consternation at my publisher over how, how to package the book, what do we call this, you know? Mm. And, um, and they ended up referring to it as a, mem as a memoir, and I'm, I'm fine with that, and I, I love the memoir form, and those books are probably the ones that most shaped me as a budding writer. Um, and, and, the, and the heart of the book certainly is a personal story, but, but I will say that there have been... Um, I, I particularly relish when folks focus on the more intellect intellectual aspects of the narrative um, as opposed to asking me about whether I'm going to have children someday or something. You know, like, people raise their hand and ask me that question in audiences, and... Um, this would be a tip on the question not to ask <laughs> later on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, so I'm going to have a question, and, and Sarah, I'll start with you on this, which is about moves to the question of how do we reset the narrative of talking about parts of the United States that are not on the nightly news every evening or featured in movies. As, you know, we, know, we all know every block of New York City, even though I have never lived there, but I feel as if I knew it from movies, et cetera. Um, to give a 
very brief setup for why I'm asking this question. As, as, you know, as some people who may, here may know, over the last few years, my wife, Deb, and I have been traveling around to smaller communities trying to see how life looks to them from their perspective, not do they like Trump, do they like Hillary, how do they feel about Obamacare, but what is happening in Sioux Falls? It's, it's getting better or getting worse. And the main difference I felt in doing that versus the normal media approach, and something that's very, very clear in both of your books in different ways, is this question of agency. Whether people who don't happen to live in New York, San Francisco, D.C., or Los Angeles have independent action. You know, they're not just objects of globalization, although that has a huge effect, or of climate change, although it has a huge effect, huge effect or changes in, in this or that law. Um, you're, you portray communities that have lots of dysfunctions and problems, but people are there are also, they're simultaneously can in control of their own lives, or they think of themselves in control of that. How do you think the agency and multidimensionality that you portray in your book, how might that inform broader discussion of Kansas, where you're from, or Idaho, where Tara is from, or inland California, where I'm from, et cetera? Well, I think that um, at, at the crux of that, and, and hopefully what my book accomplishes, is, is humanizing um, a, a person, a figure that, that tends to be portrayed in the national imagination and popular culture as a stereotype or a one-dimensional figure um, as, as something robust and multifaceted. And, and the reason that that's important um, to our national story is if, you, if power structures are such that the national media or um, politicos are um, imposing um, strictly uh, political frameworks onto human lives in places where they themselves don't tread, and that, that, what that tells you and the underlying consent, uh, condescension is that um, th- those, human, those human beings have been reduced to sort of players in some sort of national drama that's been created for, say, cable TV ratings and, and, and other, um, other uh, pro- profit-driven forces that have nothing to do with human lives on the ground. Um, and, and there are parallels. So, so we're talking about that in, in um, the uh, place realm, but there are parallels about race and gender and all sorts of things. So it's just about a power structure, and you always know who's in power by, by who gets to set the narrative about who does what and who believes what. So um, one fallacy that misguides us in our national con- conversation is that everyone in rural America is a white conservative man. Um, <laughs> um, I happen to be... Physiologically uh, impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlikely. Right. Um, and so that... I mean, that has become such a prevailing myth that while it is entirely illogical, it, 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 if I will see someone reporting on the devastating, um, write some great report about the devastating floods in the Midwest um, driven by climate change, and, and believe me, there are plenty of people who work the land every day who, who understand climate change better than an environmentalist in New York City and don't deny it. They might have different terminology for it by way of their own political frameworks, but... Um, but but it's real to them, and then and then I'll see the comments on that story disparaging the people that grow their food while they're typing the comment. Um, this like, well, then why did they vote for Trump? You know, they deserve what they get. So it's like this this hyper politicized um, framework for discussing human lives is incredibly destructive. 
Thank you. And just before turning to a version of that question to Tara, I'll say if your suggestion on what not to ask you in Q&As is, are you going to have any children? My suggestion of what national reporters should not do in venturing out there is go into a diner and ask somebody, do you still like Trump? I mean, that just flattens everything to the least interesting aspect of their lives. Well, I think the problem is that uh, it's a point of view problem because I think the left is looking at rural people or Trump supporters and they're looking at their lives and they see that the, the kind of terminal or climactic moment of a person's life, everything is building towards one moment and that moment is the voter for Donald Trump. And if you, uh, they don't really see it that way. <laughs> Actually, I think the biggest thing I notice, the biggest difference when I'm in New York or when I go back to Idaho, is um, New Yorkers are obsessed with Donald Trump. Like, obsessed. I, I can't remember the last time I had a conversation in New York City that didn't begin and end and in the middle reference Donald Trump. It just doesn't happen. And when I go home, I can go a week and, and nobody mentions him. It just, he just doesn't come up. He's not on their mind. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't be. Uh, and I'm not saying that New Yorkers are completely wrong to be obsessed. I suspect a middle ground might be the right answer. I, but I, I think there's, a, there's something strange going on just in that way. When you look at, at, a, at a human being, and the only thing you care about them is one choice that they made, and the entire shape of their life is meaningless to you except for this one moment, you're never going to understand that one moment. You're never going to get anywhere near understanding that one moment. And... More importantly, you're never going to have what you need to have a conversation with that person because what we know about persuasion and the way that it works is that you have to care about someone and you have to understand what they care about and you have to have a fundamental level of respect for them and for what they do have to offer if you are going to change their mind about the things that you think that they're incorrect about. And I benefited from this. I had all kinds of ignorant ideas when I... Um, when I left home. And I held on to some of them for probably a little longer than I should have. But in as much as I was able to change, it wasn't from people yelling at me that I was racist or homophobic or sexist, even though I was all of those things. It's true. Uh, that's a fact. But um, it was because they, would, they, they looked at me as a complete person. And they said, you know, you seem like a good human being. You seem like a good person. And I don't understand where these, where these ideas came from. And it gave me a chance to stop and think, you know, I'm not sure I need these. I'm not sure I really think them. I'm not sure I want these words coming out of my mouth. But that's the only way that you're ever going to make any difference with anybody is if you can look at the shape of their lives the way they see their lives and, and not just obsess over one moment that's, that's important to you in a kind of utilitarian way. I, I agree with that, too. And just confirming what you say in the years of traveling around the country, Deb and I never had anybody volunteer the subject of national politics to us. It was all about what is happening with the farm, with the school, with whether young people were moving in and out. And if, but, and if you asked them, you knew you were going down a path that had no, no way, uh, way up. Um, I'm going to follow up on what you both said with a specific question, then I have a high-concept question for each of you. So a specific question, if, Terry, you're saying that, we, that the, we need to think of people properly in their full drama of their lives. Everybody has his or her own drama of, of life, and we tend, to, when stereotyping, to see them in this foreshortened way. How can that be done? If, one is, if somebody didn't happen to grow up in Idaho, but is wanting to, if somebody grew up in Boston, and he or she wants to portray what's going on in Idaho, how do they do that? I think journalism does have something to do with it. I think the tropes of journalism need to change. Yeah. But I think another really difficult part of that is so few of our filmmakers and our writers and our journalists come from these places. And 
it's, a, it's something that we don't talk about much, but rural education, those kids don't tend to get out of that place. Even the ones that do go to college, they tend to go to community colleges. It takes them a lot longer to graduate. They're extremely unlikely to end up working for the Washington Post or the Atlantic or the New York Times. So you're starting off already um, just with almost no one who has a basic familiarity with those places and cultures. And, 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 and what I've noticed, too, is a tendency sometimes that there's such pressure on, on the uh, to, to turn in that kind of narrative that even sometimes when you get people who have some knowledge or familiarity, there's such a hunger for information that confirms the stereotype that even then sometimes people who, who kind of know a little better, like but they do kind of turn in that, that kind of narrative because there's an idea that people are really, are really hungry for it and they are really hungry for it. People like things that confirm what they already think. So I think some of it is on journalism to stop giving people what they want and stop shaping what people want. And Sarah, I know you've written and talked a lot about this, and you are back in Kansas now. How does the uh, media ecosystem become more diversified? Well, this is something that I've been I've been thinking about for 20 years because when I was in my um, uh, my class at my um, journalism school at the University of Kansas as a first generation college student, even there at a, a, a state university, which I. I've learned as my understanding of class has expanded over the years that you know there are, there are some places where a state university is thought of as like a, the lower end of the prestige totem pole. For me, it was like the fanciest achievement of my life that I was on that campus. And, and I was brushing up against for the first time truly middle class or sometimes upper middle class kids. And so even in that, in that training ground, I was an other for my place. And they're, and they're often... We absolutely should be diversifying newsrooms along race, gender, and, and all sorts of um, identity experiences, but often we leave place out of that conversation or, or class, and those two things often are interlinked. So, so I think, you know, how do we do it? How do we diversify those spaces is just first to, to expand our concept of, of diversity, uh, because wherever that initiative exists as, to provide a much-needed corrective across history, um, it, it should also exist for along class and place lines. Absolutely, those things intersect in, in myriad ways with race, gender, and so on. But um, but often it's it's completely left out of the conversation, and and um, and and the resulting blind spot is why you can have you know. So I come from a place where. Um, you, People who, I, I moved back to Kansas happily from New York in my 20s, and I love New York, and I go there often for business, but, but I have chosen to plant myself 30 miles from the farm I grew up on, and, um, and, and there's a, a great pride of place in Kansas, and I'm sure Idaho and all kinds of, and everywhere, um, that is often lost on folks who um, are, are in our major media centers who maybe have had a different value set. And so you'll get a headline that says something very casually like referring to my area as the flyover states. There is a blind spot there that in that newsroom, nobody caught that that is actually an incredibly condescending term for someone who lives there, which is like millions of people in the middle of our country. And people are, you know, wondering why there is this sense of distrust about the media. And, and it comes down to those blind spots that can only be rectified by expanding our definition of diversity.
Want to experience our podcast conversations firsthand? Join leading experts who will present world-changing plans, break down intractable problems, and have rich conversations with attendees. The Aspen Ideas Festival will be held in June of 2020 in a stunningly beautiful setting high in the Rocky Mountains in Aspen, Colorado. Purchase your festival pass today before they run out. Go to aspenideas.org to register. That's aspenideas.org. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's James Fallows. I have a high concept question for each of you, which I'll take a second to, to set up. Exciting. So, yes, well, it, well, I know, I try to build drama here in, in the Pepke. Uh, so here is my, my theory of American letters. My theory of American letters is that all of the great novels and memoirs and, and autobiographies and the rest are really only about four or five recurring themes. One, of course, is race. That is the great American theme connecting Mark Twain and Ralph Ellison and Robert Penn Warren and Harper Lee, my longtime Atlantic colleague, Tallahassee Coates. You know, their, their race is the American subject. Uh, women, I'd say, I've, I've been reading, going through the whole oeuvre of Edith Wharton again. I mean, she, she had an edge. And Willa Cather, and this has been, I think, the second great theme underappreciated in American letters, but it's been there. Third, I would say, is dislocation and striving. From, in a way, you could say that everything from John Steinbeck to F. Scott Fitzgerald is sort of in the dislocation and striving, and Upton Sinclair and Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, this is a, a country of people on the move. And then I would say class. Class is the other theme, and I'd say, you know, Theodore Dreiser, a uh, hundred plus years ago was right. An American tragedy is, in a sense, every American novel about right now could be drawn from American tragedy a uh, hundred years ago. What's interesting to me, this is my setup to you. So a lot of your book, the, 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 non the part that's not memoir is about class. And you're saying that this is the under-recognized part of the American drama Enlisting what I'm contending are the main themes of American life, we're trying to wrestle with race and with dislocation and with women, but are more awkward about class. Um, so tell us, uh, but I, and I think for a long time that's been the case. How do you think of more frontally discussing class in American life? Well, this is so important, and I'm going to begin with a short anecdote. Um, when I was first starting to kind of, sh I've been reporting locally and regionally for many years, but um, I would say five years ago is when my essay started to get more like national attention. And, and at that moment, um, what I was finding, I would be pitching editors at national American outlets for U.S. outlets for um, these, this commentary that I was making about socioeconomic class in this country. Um, this is this is pre 2016. This is this is Obama is still like I don't know somewhere in his second term, and um, I was just I, w I was turned down. I mean, countless times by every every major uh, national outlet on those themes, and I would get ref I would get feedback along the lines of like we're not sure why this matters, um, and and the editors that would pick up those essays that ended up quote unquote going viral. Um, were always based in the UK. And so I developed a little bit of a theory that while they've got their own class problems, they have centuries on us in reckoning with the concept of class inequality and structure. And in fact, they, they have a, a robust language and, and just deep lived understanding of the concept of class in their society. Um, whereas we, for our, 
our foundational mythology was that this is a bootstraps country where we have transcended class and it doesn't even exist. So we've been in sort of a collective denial for centuries that of course is now coming to a head. Um, uh, but, but that quickly we have reached some sort of tipping point that we saw in the, uh, I think, you know, it essentially amounted to the, that moment that was the 2016 presidential election and a reckoning with there's this other thing happening um, alongside absolutely racism and sexism and all of the above. And it's, and it's this gross inequality and how does that pervert our society? Um, we, ha we don't have the right words for it. So, so I will talk to politicians. Sometimes I'm asked to, you know, give some sort of perspective for policymakers and, and, and they are our national leaders sometimes. I'm talking about my upbringing as the working poor, among the working poor, and then they will, they will just loosely interchange that experience with middle class. And it's like, no, that ain't the same thing. You know, so we don't even have the words down as a country, and simultaneously and dangerously, we don't share a common set of definitions. So those very things mean something different to perhaps someone, but depending on political ideology. And so we are um, just now beginning to find the tools to even have a national discussion, which is why I think that rooms like this are so important because I can write all day long, but and then someone has the private experience of reading that, and that has had um, some effect, I hope and feel. Um, but ultimately, we've got to have a, a national conversation in a more intimate way to say, like, we care about this um, in a human way, and this is how we're going to talk about it. The UK is such yeah. an interesting... I lived there for 10 years, so I have to comment on that. <laughs> when I got there, I was really blown away by how much class is just right in your face. Um, so if you're in the UK, if you're somewhere like Cambridge or Oxford, it's kind of astonishing. I mean, people, they can place you, your socioeconomic background. You say five words. They know everything they need to know about you. And, uh, and I think it can be a quite, uh, it can be penalizing. I mean, I know some working class people who went to Cambridge and had really difficult experiences there because of that, because they, were, they felt excluded, they felt like it wasn't for them. I had a kind of lucky experience at Cambridge, I think, because even though I was raised by like, you know, in the mountains by these kind of radical people, uh, there isn't actually a Mormon survivalist accent, which is nice. <laughs> good for me. So I just kind of turned up and was there. And, um, but I, I saw that. It's, there's an obsession with class. And then I did a fellowship at Harvard right after Cambridge. And the, the change was kind of astonishing. The way that I experienced it at the time was I felt like at Cambridge, people cared a lot more who your parents were. They wanted to know, and they wanted to know so they could decide how seriously to take you. That was true. And at Harvard, I felt like there was less of that. There was more of an idea, like, you're here, you must be great. But I actually, and I thought that was great in a lot of ways, but the other side of it was, I felt like um, there was a lot less acknowledgement of how important it is who your parents are to whether you get to Harvard. There was almost no discussion of it at all. So I think that there are costs, in a way, to being so obsessed with class, in the way that the UK is obsessed with it, in unhealthy ways as well as healthy ways. But I do think the fact that they have a language for it does give them some advantage over the U.S., which is just rife with clash issues that are completely invisible to people. We're able to talk about it in terms of, of race, uh, but we're not able to talk about it in terms of class. And that is going to, you know, we're paying for that now. 
I, I agree, and just a, a word of confirming experience. I, I also spent a couple of years at, at Oxford, and my, my experience was that Americans who were there went two ways. Some of them tried to sound Brit. And <laughs> I tried to sound more and more like Jack Nicholson every day I was there. I was thinking, you know, the greatest American war was the Revolutionary War. I was over 10 years, and by the end, I was sounding a little weird. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, Idaho and British, that's not a good combination. You don't really want to have that. Like, that's not a good idea. So, so here's my high-concept version of the question for you, which is another of the great themes of American letters through time has been religion, the religious impulse, which was so important and found in the United States and has continued to move people across the continent to get away from things I didn't like. Um, you come from a background that when it's written about in the normal media can be boiled down as Mormon survivalists in Idaho. How can people write about that religious impulse in a more um, fully dimensioned way? I think it has to do with how complete a picture you can see of a, a person. Are you able to understand that a person can have limited views in one part of their life and be wrong about something, even something really important? and then have an incredible capacity for compassion in another part of their life. And I, I don't think that we address, for example, the ways that some of these, there's a lot of views that we're rightly very hostile to because they're prejudiced, but I don't think that we often address how many of those views correlate with class issues, actually, and the role that being impoverished or not having access to education actually plays in the creation of some of these views. So we end up punishing people twice, in a way. And... Um, I mean, I, I know people that have views that I find to be really, really wrongheaded, maybe even apprehensible, but have done things like taken in foster children and adopted them, which I don't know if there's a greater act of just utter self-sacrifice to open your home to someone for like 20 years or longer, um, but have views that I think are not, are not great about things. And that to, to recognize that people are not one thing and you can write about someone who has a prejudiced view, but you have to kind of understand that's just one side of them. They are full and complete. And I think there is a, there is a I would hope, room in people's minds to think, you know, sometimes people get given ideas when they're younger. And most of us, I, I think most of us, if we were brought up the way some people are, would, would think these things. And we have to give people some time to grow up. That's not to say that racism or sexism is okay and that we shouldn't be protecting people who suffer from that rhetoric, because it's not. But I think there might be some benefit to trying to attack the prejudice and not the people and trying to take some social responsibility for the fact that um, some people don't grow up with access to the same kinds of educational opportunities as other people. And... I think that there's a real, uh, I, I talk about it as letting education putrefy into arrogance. When you have what you think of as an enlightened mind and you think that you, you don't have any of these prejudices, even though we know that we all do unconsciously, um, and then you uh, just really viciously attack people who just didn't have your opportunities and don't have any empathy for the fact that they are, they're trying to find their way. Uh, and I, I think it's super complicated because you never want to be in a position of defending someone who's homophobic or defending someone who's sexist. I never want to do that. But I also, I know where some of those ideas come from and I know it takes a while. If you've been seeped in that your whole life and everyone that you love and respect has told you this, society has to take some responsibility too and they have to provide a way out of that before they can start really punishing people for them, I think. Yeah. 
So, so let, let me ask you about this religion issue too with, with a, another brief setup. In, in the book that Deb and I did, um, we realized that the theme we most avoided was actually religion and faith. Even though we, we describe people who the, the the Catholic sisters in Western Kansas who were incorporating um, refugees and people who were doing that in South Dakota, and there were personal reasons. There was a personal reason in our, our household about Deb's upbringing that she just um, is anti-religious now for for personal reasons, and also we thought we didn't know how to do it without getting into the shoals of political divisiveness because so much of um, religion has become overlapping with politics now. You write about religion to some degree in your book. How do you think people from the outside should write about religion, which is so important in American communities? Well, I think it um, it, it kind of goes back to what Tara was saying. Um, trying to, to enter the, 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 the context and, and, and the fullness of, of the life that has shaped that person's views in in this case, with a specifically religious connotation, um, is essential to beginning any sort of conversation because um, for many people, and myself included on some points, um, millions of people across this country, a, a religious ideology is, is primary and, and actually the springboard to the political viewpoints. And for much of secular, formula, form, formally educated America, it's like that, that the, the primary is, is the political root um, that probably came from family or social group. But, but the thing is, the, so, so those two people are being shaped differently, um, but they might not be so different at their essence. So if someone has this, again, echoing Tara, sort of a progressive view and they're feeling sort of high and mighty about it when entering some sort of, like, say, Southern Baptist space to talk about race or, or gender. Um, it's, it's, it's a falsehood to associate, I think, po- political viewpoints and how that intersects with, with religion with one's own character. Because I was the very, I was the exact same person I am now at my core and my essence when I was a... Um, uh, a little girl in rural Kansas being taught about abortion in the framework of the Catholic Church in which I was raised devoutly. Um, by my early 20s, I was still, um, I still referred to myself as quote-unquote pro-life. Um, my views have dramatically shifted since then because my information set changed. I still value a lot of things about my Catholic upbringing, and I have taken those with me and kept them. But I, I understand how... Um, you can have an entire community for whom they, they're, they're viewing that issue as with a completely different, through a completely different reality. So I, I think the, the first step is, is humbling yourself to um, the, the, different, um, the different experience that, that this person you might be attempting to write about has had to form the opinions as opposed to, yes, I, from, I think it's fair to say that, that we can objectively rank some viewpoints in terms of validity and value and decency. So racism, bad, um, you know? So, like, that's a fact, and yet that's a, that's a different question than how did one come, in, come to a view that is, like, let's say, sexist by way of the Catholic Church. Um, it's, a, it's about humility, I think. One more question for each of you before I invite the audience to ask questions. I recognize that your books, and I think 
um, especially educated, are not formulated as to-do task lists for, for readers. This Super is, not. <laughs> this is not a sort of uh, consulting firm uh, best practices um, presentation. But if you, with your experience and education in the United States and around the world, were telling an audience like this or audience like, the, like, like these one or two things you wish were different that would make the United States more aware of its internal diversity? Would these be scholarship programs? Would they be what? If you, if you were queen or uh, you know, empress for the next period of time, what would you decree to make the United States more richer in its understanding of itself? Sure. Um, I guess two things. The, the policy change that I would pursue is, would be with our education system. I think we really need to take seriously the idea that everyone should have access to a quality education, and we need to do everything that we can to make that a reality. And we, have, we say that, but there's a lot of evidence that we don't really believe it. We do all kinds of things to make sure that education in this country is wildly unequal, and that some people are going to get a lot of it, and some people are not going to get any. And, and as, as long as we allow education to be something that a certain type of person gets and a certain type of person doesn't, we're just seeing the very beginning of our political turmoil. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say on an individual level that people should do, if I was giving advice to people, is I would just say, do everything that you possibly can to not think in stereotypes. Uh, don't stereotype your black coworker. Don't stereotype women. Don't stereotype poor white people. Don't stereotype the gay person that you know or the 10, whatever. Just don't. People are individuals. They're not representations of a category. And that's true whether someone voted for Donald Trump or it's true whether they voted for Hillary Clinton. It's true no matter what race they are, no matter what gender. I think what we forget sometimes is that the real benefit that you get when you're not a minority, when you're not someone who's dismissed, what that privilege looks like is that you get to be you. You just get to be a person. You don't have to turn up and be a representative of anything. And I think... If, if we're serious about bridging the political divide, that's what has to change. We have to actively resist our tendency to think in stereotypes. And when you see a news story that pops up on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and it, and it just has these five attributes, and the implicit message is always that if you know one thing about a person, they own a shotgun, that you know everything that you need to know about them, we just have to resist that. It, there's something in the human mind that is programmed to think that way, and the, the way that the media functions in the technology age really exacerbates it. We just have to do everything that we can with all the people in our lives to stop sorting people into categories and think that because we know one thing about them that we don't need to engage any further. So, Sarah, if you, your practical advice, which we have more of in your book, but if you were mm -hmm. saying it here. Well, I think this is something I don't get into in my book, but I think a lot about as a journalist. Um, my great healing effort would be to um, create more moments like this where people are sharing a three-dimensional space and looking each other in the eye and talking face-to-face -face as human beings because um, and this is something that Jim's work has revealed and that I've lived firsthand and, 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 and a lot of people know, but, but you don't catch it so much in national headlines there is a, an, a real gulf between the story that we tell ourselves about a country and those conflict and ratings-driven conversations in, in, in New York City studios 
and, and what happens on the ground in local communities, which yes, are rife with problems, but also usually are a majority decent folks who want to figure out problems and help others and wish the best for folks. Maybe they've got different ideas about how to accomplish it. But it's incredibly heartening, and I think right now we're, we are potentially more demoralized as a country than we even realize in the sort of survival mode that we have entered for this civic moment. Um, it's, it's incredibly important for us to be inspired by one another just in looking each other in the eye and seeing one another's goodness, which I find to be the overwhelming majority um, across political lines, I would add. Um, and that's why, you know, when I, when I talk about my book, folks of all different stripes and colors and political ideologies come, and, and what they are gathering around is a, is a common experience of the subtitle of my book, Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth. That's unfortunately a quite universal experience for millions. Um, but, but those events have been so heartening to me because nobody, again, no, people don't want to talk about Trump. I, I've only seen... I've been living in Kansas for almost all of my 38 years. Well, this is only in the context of the last few. I've only seen two Make America Great Again hats in the wild in, the, in like three years. <laughs> so like there's some that we got we to gotta get, we gotta get together. We got to get off of social media a little bit and look at each other in the eye instead of letting headlines tell us who we are. So I'm going to say one more thing to connect what both Tara and Sarah were saying, and then we'll have some questions. So, uh, so many of you, and all of you know of, many of you knew David Halberstam, a great uh, you know book writer and journalist. He, his first reporting job was in West Point, Mississippi, in a tiny little town. He was from Connecticut and from Harvard. Fifty years later, he gave the commencement address at the University of Mississippi, and his conclusion was this. What's important is that I did not learn the things I expected to learn, the things I thought I was going to be paid to learn. I learned instead other more, en more enduring things that have lasted me the rest of my life. I learned that people from other parts of the country are not any more stereotypical than I was, that human complexity always confounded you, and that the most dangerous thing in the world is to underestimate the intelligence and decency of other people. And finally, most important of all, I learned about the nobility of ordinary people. I think this is a theme that, that you all are very eloquently expressing. Questions? Yes. This can be for either of you. In Jim Fallow's previous presentations here at the festival, he brought back a very optimistic view about small towns in rural America. I wondered if either of you would comment on whether you're optimistic about the future, given the direction that our country's taking. I guess I would say cautiously optimistic. Um, that's sort of just my nature, but, but with, I think, some, some supportive data at the moment, which is that um, when, when I'm living my life in Kansas, people are just, they're trying to figure out solutions at the local level. Um, they, if, if, you, if you focus in on a local community, there, there's much more to, to, to feel optimistic about. Those, um, those realms and political units and lives, of course, are deeply influenced by federal policy and, and state governments. Um, those uh, systems obviously seem to be um, much more... Uh, uh, troubled at the moment. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm cautiously optimistic about those systems, but I would say that at those local levels, what I see is the potential for a disruption of the most toxic elements of those bigger structures that have been creating our lives. So, so um, 
we have this unfortunate thing going on recently in, in media banter of conflating populism with conservatism. And, and in fact, uh, a place like Kansas and much of the Midwest has a, has a deeply um, uh, progressive populist, what used to be called prairie populism, um, political foundation. Of course, it's been quite dormant for many decades, and, and we tend to have a short political memory in the United States as a young country. But, um, but I see... Uh, I see the, um, the, the percolating and the uprising of a level of attention-paying and civic duty and sense of personal agency just in the act of showing up um, to um, a civic event or to participate in a campaign in a way that has most certainly been activated and is reactionary to the 2016 election. And that is one of the, the beautiful outcomes of what for me was, was, was an unfortunate um, presidential election um, is that I see folks who, my dad's an example, he's a 63-year-old white construction worker who grew up on a farm in Kansas. And he's always been a pretty you know, I'd say liberal thinking guy, but never active in politics. I mean, most folks who spend their whole day on a construction site or in a wheat field don't have time for such things. Um, but he's finding a way to be more informed. Um, last fall, he voted in a midterm election for the first time in his life. And that makes me, and I, and I know that he's just, um, he's, he's uh, a symbol for many. Um, I'm hopeful in that way. Tara, do you have a want to weigh in? I don't know if I, if, I, if I would say I'm optimistic. I would say we have been through political upheavals before, Industrial Revolution and things like that, and we have survived them. I worry that we are running out of time to fix our political debate. There are some pretty big problems that have to do with tech and climate change, the ocean filling up with plastic, the ozone. I mean, there are problems we need to fix, and uh, we have to fix our political system to do that, and we have to find a way to talk to people that we don't understand and be persuasive to them. And we do, I think, have a limited amount of time to do that. But there are indications that we've done this before. This isn't the first time that we've had a massive economic shifts that have left large parts of the population feeling disenfranchised. And we can, I, I think it's definitely possible, but we, we're leaving it a little late, so we should probably get going. So, question back here, yes. Hi. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire, upper middle class, and I, the love of my life is a guy from the middle of nowhere, Iowa, somewhere called Wachir. It's literally two words, like what and cheer. Um, it's not the most cheeriest place on the planet, but what we've learned being together, and the great equalizer for us was the United States military, so we both um, met there and married from there, but... We've noticed, I live in Baltimore City now, that many of the problems that plague the urban poor are the exact same things that plague the people in his hometown. So like lack of resources, um, food deserts, and lack of access to healthcare, lack of good education. But there doesn't seem to be a national conversation that might actually be uniting to note that the mega cities that are in the megalopolis on the East Coast are the same exact problems in a different fashion that are plaguing the Midwest. So I wanted to know if you had any thoughts about that. What would be haiku-scale responses to that? Well, I think that, that Morpho, you, your union that you described and your partnership has, has created a bridge that has informed you and, and likewise your partner, I imagine, in that way. And, and I think we just need more, more bridge moments, whether it's at the human level or whether it's um, in diversifying our professional spaces. 
um, that allow us to have that understanding. So I, while I'm, people ask me to talk about rural America, I often hear from people who, you know, it might be a woman of color who grew up in, in the Bronx, and she, she says, I see my grandma and your grandma Betty. And, um, and the common thread is, while my grandma benefited from white privilege and hers didn't, they were both tough broads in an impossible economic situation who took care of their families. And so um, I think that in our um, uh, uh, liberal frameworks, we often were focusing on identity differences, as we should, to address inequities. Um, but we've got to make room to find those, those ties that bind and, and simultaneously acknowledge the universal experiences because that allows us to humanize what has previously been viewed as the other, such as a rural place or an African-American population and so on. And, and then that group can be valued the same as the one that's already getting more attention for the services they need. So, Tara, do you want to answer or shall we take one more we question? take one more. Okay, we have time for one more question if the... Uh, Runners, well, whoever, whoever has the microphone can speak. There is a fact in rural America, and particularly in southern rural America, that the hospital system is disintegrating, if not disappearing, in many areas within the South. And in those areas particularly where Medicaid has been rejected by the state government of Republicans, and where this administration has been attacking the ACA to such a degree that ordinary citizens at the lowest levels are not being covered and cannot afford coverage. So how, how if this continues in any perceivable way over the course of the next several years, once a hospital closes and the personnel uh, disperse, how will that be uh, regenerated and what is the impact in rural America of the failure of healthcare provision? So this is obviously an enormous question which we have 30 seconds to deal with. I think you should do. She's more knowledgeable on this, I think. Okay. Um, well, I will, this is a huge issue, and Kansas is one of the non-expansion states, one of 13 at the moment. Um, nationally, when the USDA conducted their agricultural census in 2012, um, 100 rural hospitals had closed in the previous 10 years, and that has exponentially increased. Um, it's a major crisis, and what happens, that local economy then crumbles. And I think the, what the forward motion of your question is, how then do we rebuild? How do, you, how do you ever draw back what has been lost? And that's, I think, actually, I try to look at that as an opportunity to create a new version of rural America that is inclusive, and um, uh, thinking about the environment and driven by local wisdom. Um, but, but it absolutely, it's, um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I, I saw it firsthand as, as a kid when, when the storefronts close and the people leave. That's one of the reasons that I went back to where I'm from to be part of the, what I hope will be a revival. My cousin, I was in my hometown recently, the county seat of my hometown. We were driving, all the storefronts were closed, but there were two funeral parlors that opened up. And she said to me, uh, it's getting so the only thing there is to do in town is die. And I just thought, yeah, there needs to be some serious revitalization of these areas. Like, it's, it just has to be done. Like, it can't go on the way it is. On this note, uh, <laughs> please join me in thanking two remarkable writers. Sarah Smarsh is the author of Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. 
Tara Westover wrote Educated about her childhood in rural Idaho. James Fallows is the author of Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. Their conversation was held in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.